Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call.
marking the second consecutive quarter of NIM expansion. Non-interest income increased a strong 15% over Q4, driven by higher wealth management fees, banking, and trading revenues. The PCL ratio declined significantly to 49 basis points for the quarter. This represents a decline of 24 basis points quarter over quarter and two basis points year over year. Daniel will discuss PCLs in more detail shortly. We continue to manage expenses prudently. On a year-over-year basis, expenses declined 1%, excluding the impact of divestitures. This decrease was driven by lower personal costs, benefits from foreign currency translation, and business development costs with offsets such as higher performance-based compensation and our payment to reorganize the scene loyalty program this quarter. The productivity ratio improved to 51.8% compared to 53.4% a year ago. And the bank generated strong operating leverage of 3%. On slide six, we provide an evolution of our common equity tier one capital ratio over the quarter. The bank reported a strong common equity tier one ratio of 12.2%, improving 40 basis points from Q4 and 80 basis points from a year ago. This was due primarily to strong internal capital generation, additional benefits from pension remeasurement, and book quality improvements in retail, and partly offset by the impact from the transitional phase out of OSFI's partial inclusion of stage one and two ECL and foreign currency translation. Turning now to the business line results beginning on slide seven. Canadian banking had a strong quarter as the rebound in earnings continued with adjusted net income of $915 million, up 17% quarter over quarter. Both net interest income and non-interest revenue grew, expenses remained contained, and PCLs continued to normalize. Pre-tax pre-provision earnings grew 5% quarter over quarter, driven by 3% growth in revenue. Compared to the prior quarter, net interest income grew 1% and non-interest revenue increased a strong 9%. The net interest margin was stable at 2.26% in line with our outlook for this year. Residential mortgages grew 7% and business lending grew 5%. Prudent management of discretionary expenses such as advertising and travel resulted in a 2% decline in non-interest expense year over year, and the PCL ratio decreased to 23 basis points. Turning now to global wealth management on slide eight. Earnings of $425 million was up a strong 34% year over year, driven by solid mutual fund sales, momentum, strong contributions from iTrade, and performance fees. The performance fees of $62 million after tax were driven by substantial benchmark outperformance by certain dynamic funds in calendar 2020. Less than 3% of our assets under management are eligible for such performance fees. Excluding these performance fees, the division still reported very strong year-over-year earnings growth of 14%. Revenue grew a strong 9%, while expenses grew only 6%, generating a positive operating leverage of 3%. Canadian wealth management earnings were up 49%, or 25% excluding the higher performance fees 
with six of our businesses seeing double-digit growth. Assets under management and assets under administration increased 5% to $314 billion and 10% to $546 billion from the prior year, respectively, with record asset levels achieved in Canadian Asset Management, Jaroslawski Fraser, MD Financial, and Private Investment Council as we continue to win customer mandates across our wealth platform. Moving to slide nine, global banking and markets. Net income of 543 million was up 20% year over year and 18% quarter over quarter. The year over year improvement was driven by higher net interest income, non-interest income, and lower non-interest expenses partly offset by higher provision for credit losses. Capital markets results benefited from continued strong performance in fixed income, complemented by improved performance in equities in foreign exchange. Our equity capital markets and M&A businesses were very active in the quarter, and our pipeline is robust, which bodes well for the balance of the year. Our corporate loan portfolio continues to perform very well in terms of credit risk, and we expect to see good asset growth across the division in 2021. Expenses decreased 6% year-over-year, primarily due to lower personal costs as well as lower advertising and business development expenses. <coughs> With earnings of $174 million in Q1, GBM LATAM posted 32% growth in earnings from Q4, continuing to reflect the investments made to grow our wholesale banking operations in Latin America. Turning to the next slide on international banking, my comments that follow are based on adjusted and constant dollar basis and normalizing for the impact of divestitures. International banking reported net income of 398 million, which was up 47% quarter over quarter. Improving business conditions support our increasingly optimistic outlook for the division and our expectation of achieving $500 million of earnings by Q4 2021. Earnings increased in all four Pacific Alliance countries over the previous quarter and were above pre-pandemic levels in both Chile and Colombia and in Mexico, excluding the benefits from the alignment of reporting period last year. Pre-tax pre-provision earnings increased 3% from the prior quarter for the business line overall, while the Pacific Alliance countries grew 6%. Total loans grew 2% year-over-year as commercial lending grew 4% while retail lending was stable. Net interest margin of 403 basis points improved 6 basis points compared to Q4 as we paid down higher cost borrowings. Non-interest income improved 2% compared to Q4, mainly driven by net fees and commissions that was up 4% reflecting improving retail customer activity. Including the impact of the elimination of the one-month reporting lag in Mexico last year, non-interest income decreased a modest 7% year-over-year. Provisions for credit loss ratio declined quarter-over-quarter to 149 basis points as the economic outlook continues to improve. Expenses declined 4% year-over-year and 2% compared to Q4, driven by digital acceleration, distribution optimization, and other efficiency initiatives. Now turning to the other segment, we reported earnings of $47 million driven by better results from asset liability management activities and from higher securities gains. 
We expect the other segment to have a positive earnings for the balance of the year, benefiting primarily from lower funding costs. I'll now turn the call over to Daniel to discuss first. Thank you, Raj, and good morning, everyone. I will begin my remarks on slide 13. To sum up the quarter in one sentence, we ended Q1 with stable credit quality, strong credit performance, and improving credit trends. Our customer assistance programs are complete, and the credit performance of customers exiting these pr programs remains very strong. At the end of Q1, the bank reported total allowances of $7.8 billion, in line with Q4. Our ACL build is complete, and we are well reserved for estimated net write-offs, which are expected to begin in Q2. Our total provisions for credit loss, our PCL, declined to $764 million, which is down 32% quarter over quarter and in line with last year. The total PCL ratio fell by 24 basis points from Q4. That's two basis points below Q1 of last year. The impaired PCL ratio fell by five basis points quarter over quarter to 49 basis points. And we continue to expect the total PCL ratio to decline through 2021. This is consistent with our guidance we provided last quarter. Moving to slide 14, I want to briefly discuss our performing and impaired PCLs. Beginning with our impaired PCLs, we reported $762 million in Q1. That's down from $835 million last quarter. The improvement came from lower commercial provisions across Canadian banking, international banking, and GBM, with some increase in international retail. This reflects stable overall delinquencies in line with their expectations. Our performing PCLs were a modest $2 million in Q1, down from 296 in Q4. This decline was across all business lines due to good asset quality and more favorable macroeconomic outlook. Turning to asset quality, our portfolio remains strong, as you can see on slide 15. Our GIL ratio of 84 basis points was up only three basis points <coughs> last quarter and seven basis points year over year. The primary reason with higher formations in international retail, as we expected. Formations in GBM improved from last quarter and last year, driven by lower formations in energy, real estate, and construction. On the bottom of slide 15, you can see the all-bank net write-off ratio. It increased slightly to 43 basis points, but remains 11 basis points lower than a year ago. The slight increase over Q4 was primarily driven by international retail. This was partially offset by improvements in Canadian and international commercial banking. We expect migration of loans from performing to impaired in Q2 and Q3 of this year, in line with the expected write-offs, and of course, we've got allowances for that. So let me conclude with a few takeaways. First of all, our asset quality remains high, and our credit trends are better than expected. Secondly, our allowances are more than sufficient to cover estimated future write-offs. Thirdly, improving macroeconomic trends support our positive credit outlook for the remainder of the year. And finally, the total PCL ratio will improve 
gradually through 2021. I will now turn the call over to Brian for closing remarks. Thank you, Daniel. On our last quarterly earnings call, I highlighted the resilience of the bank during times, times of economic uncertainty. The resilience is rooted in our highly diversified business model, high quality assets, and a strong risk management culture. I am particularly proud of our ROE exceeding the medium term target of 14% and our common equity tier one ratio increasing to 12.2%. This provides greater flexibility for capital deployment. As I have mentioned previously, we have multiple avenues for organic growth across all our business lines and we look forward to increased flexibility in the future, including share buybacks. The power of diversification in deriving these results cannot be overstated. As a leading bank in the Americas, we are highly diversified with four major business lines across six core markets. Our diversification and competitive strength provide stability during times of economic stress and is now showing its earnings power during economic recovery. Importantly, all four business lines contributed to our results this quarter. Global wealth management and global banking and markets demonstrated very strong year-over-year -year growth, while Canadian banking and international banking showed marked improvement over the previous quarter and are demonstrating positive momentum to return to normal earnings levels as business conditions improve. I believe this provides a clear indication of the direction of our earnings in an improving economic environment. In addition to resilience, we have also demonstrated flexibility with strong expense management. While low interest rates and lower levels of economic activity have proven challenging to revenue growth, we have adjusted quickly by reducing expenses by 2% over the past year while still making critical investments in technology and regulatory initiatives. The result is a positive operating leverage of 3% and an industry-leading productivity ratio of 51.8%. The bank also continues to make significant progress in digital banking. This quarter, we have expanded our digital metrics to include data on active digital users, active mobile users, and self-serve transactions. This demonstrates the bank's continued progress with active digital and mobile users up almost 20% in the past year. Digital sales accounting for over 40% of retail banking sales and self-serve transactions nearing 90% of all banking transactions. The pandemic has accelerated the shift of customers to digital and mobile channels for day-to-day -day banking. Our leading digital innovation, highly rated mobile apps, and consistent digital investments position us well to realize greater customer satisfaction and improve productivity from the, sh from the shift to digital and mobile. Finally, we believe strongly in the importance of high standards in banking and making a difference in the communities in which we live and work. We continue to raise the bar in ESG with investments and commitments which will improve environmental standards, enable that transition to cleaner energy sources, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and promote economic resilience in our communities. 
We continue to make steady progress towards our goal to mobilize $100 billion in lending, financing, and advisory services by 2025 to reduce the impacts of climate change. We also launched Scotia Rise, a 10-year, $500 million community investment program designed to promote economic resilience among disadvantaged people. These efforts will continue to gain momentum. In closing, I would like to highlight that economic conditions continue to improve across our America's footprint. Forecasts for economic growth have been revised higher since Q4 as reflation takes hold. This bodes very well for asset growth in our core markets, including the United States, which is our second largest market in terms of earnings, where we have a significant wholesale business which will benefit from a strong U.S. economic recovery. In addition, our Pacific Alliance countries, notably Mexico, have strong trading relationships with the United States that provide leverage to U.S. economic growth. With strong performance across all four business lines, improving margins, well-managed expenses, high levels of allowances for potential write-offs, and growing capital levels, I am greatly encouraged by our Q1 results. It reflects the significant efforts we have made to reposition the bank and the investments we have made over the past several years, and I look forward to continued positive momentum over the course of 2021 and beyond. With that, that concludes my formal remarks, and I'll turn it over to you. Take your questions. Please limit yourself to one question and then rejoin the queue to allow everyone the opportunity to participate in the call. Operator, can we have the first question on the phone, please? Certainly. The first question is from Ibrahim Punawala from Bank of America Securities. Please go ahead. Good morning. I guess uh, if you could just uh, spend some time on the international banking segment, uh, uh, Raj and maybe Nacho. Give us a sense of, I think, Raj, I heard you say that you still feel good about getting to the $500 million net income by the, at some point, I guess, by the end of 2021. But give us a sense of, if you don't mind breaking down your expectations around customer activity recovering, and do we see the fees going back all the way to uh, where we were a year ago, I think about $640 million. And then also on the credit outlook, is there anything around international bank uh, credit metrics that... Uh, could lead to a little bit more of a lag credit recovery in ID versus the rest of the bank. Thank you. Good morning, Ibrahim. This is Nacho. Thank you for your question. Before answering specifically the drivers to, to get to the 500 million by Q4, let me tell you that I'm very pleased with our Q1 results and feel even greater confidence to achieve a 500 million or more by the end of the year. Uh, Q over Q, our revenues were up 1%, PTPP was up 3%, and PCLs went down 30%. And this was even stronger in the Pacific Alliance con countries, where PTPP was up 6% Q over Q, and earnings were only 11% below pre-COVID levels, showing high resiliency. And yes, we are seeing better business momentum, both in our commercial and retail segments, and I see a combination of, of different drivers to bridge the gap from where we are today, 398, to get to 500 million by Q4. First, I expect our loan book to resume growth sequentially starting in Q2, 
and to grow around 6% from Q1 to the end of the year. Second, as commercial activity, particularly retail in the second half of the year, uh, accelerates, we still have 80 million gap in fees and commissions to compared to pre-COVID levels that I expect that gradually will increase. Then I will also highlight Ibrahim expenses. Expenses have been positive to our results. Last quarter, we reduced $20 million, our expenses, and we will continue to go down sequentially. And finally, at constant effects, our PCLs are still $50 million above pre-COVID levels. And due to business mix and asset quality, we expect PCLs to continue to go down. So I have increased confidence, also supported by the strong economic recovery that is underway in the Pacific Alliance countries. And Ibrahim, I'd probably just add one comment to Nacho's wholesome response. Is the net interest margin has started improving, and as retail growth starts coming back, their name should improve as well, which should add to the net interest income uh, momentum from Q1. And uh, if I could just follow up, it was a wholesome response, so thank you. Is there anything, and, and sorry, we are not as intimately sort of familiar with day-to-day uh, -day in that um, your Pacific Alliance market, but anything around the vaccine front that uh, concerns you or anything negative on the political front, Nacho, that we should be looking out for? No, no not really. Uh, actually, let's put things in context first, Ibrahim. The number of new cases are trending down in the four Pacific Alliance countries, and per 100,000 population, the infection rates are similar to the U.S. and Canada. And at these levels, uh, hospitals and the health systems are manageable. Second, while there have been some COVID restriction measures in most countries similar to the rest of the world, there has been no impact in the economic recovery, which has been strong, and GDP is expected to grow in average 6% in 2021. The governments have been actively securing vaccines. For instance, Peru, Chile, and Mexico have purchased enough doses to cover 100% of their populations, and Colombia 50%. And the four Pacific Alliance countries have already started vaccination. Actually, let me highlight Chile because it's one of the leading countries worldwide doing better even than Canada with above 15% of the population already va vaccinated. So in summary, while managing COVID, the economic recovery of the region is underway. Got it, thanks for taking my question. Okay, operator, can we have the next question, please? The next question is from John Aiken from Barclays. Please go ahead. Good morning. Daniel, you, you highlighted international retail a couple times in your prepared commentary. And, and while I'm fully aware that there is a mix and uh, some offsets in terms of the diversification, we did see uh, a step up on impaired loans in terms of Mexico, Peru, and Colombia. was hoping that you might um, be able to dive in and give us a little more detail in terms of what was happening in those particular countries and whether or not it's symptomatic across uh, these three or if there are uh, um, differences in terms of what's been, what's been developing. No, th thanks, John. Uh, this was completely anticipated as we looked at how this was going to evolve going forward. And really what we're seeing here is the impact of the expiry of the deferral programs, which happened in many of our markets in the fall. And those are trending through now to late-stage delinquency. You can also see that effect, by the way, on the, uh, the nine days past due chart on page 34. There's a bit of a denominator effect there as the demand for unsecured credit has come down. 
But really what we're seeing is what we call the pig in the python, as those early stage delinquencies make their way to late stage, and of course that manifests itself somewhat in our provisions as well. So that was fully anticipated, John, and, uh, and part of our allowances. Okay, thank you, Daniel. Operator, for the next question, please. Thank you. The next question is from Doug, Doug Young from Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Just on the regulatory capital ratio, it looked like, you know, improved book quality, you know, impact or to positively impact the set one ratio, but 18 basis points. Hoping you can just maybe elaborate with what you're seeing from a migration perspective and from a capital or set one organic set one generation over the next year. Can you kind of remind us what you think you can generate uh, for the set one ratio? Thank you. Sure, Doug. Happy to do that. It's Raj. So as far as this quarter goes, the RWA declined by about $10 billion. So it declined uh, you know, from 417 to $407 billion. But excluding effects, it declined about six basis, uh, sorry, $6 billion, primarily relating to book quality improvements like you pointed out. There's been minimal migration impact. Business banking migration was up about you know, a billion and a half. Retail was down by a billion and a half. You can see it on page 77 of the subpact, the regulatory subpact that is. And that reflects actually the asset quality that we have. If you look at our business banking uh, disclosures, 85% of our exposures are in the top three PD bands, and our retail exposures are 94% of the top four PD bands, which is 75 basis points and less. So that's something that we expect to see, you know, reflects the asset quality. Daniel just referred to it in his prepared remarks as well. But specifically, when you're talking about RWA flow, you know, we update our regulatory capital metrics, the PDs, LGDs, in Q1 of each year. And this quarter, there's an improvement in the credit risk book quality, primarily in uninsured retail mortgages, which you'll see once again in the sub pack, you know, page 36, 38, if you look at. Our PDs improved from 63 basis points to 53 basis points. Some lower delinquencies, historical default data, all that stuff that happens annually, frankly, in Q1. And then there's also improvement in LGD, again, in the same category, which is retail mortgages, because our projected loss experience data is expected to get better. All of it to say that portfolio quality is very good. Migration has been fairly muted. There'll be some migration we expect will come, you know, in Q2 and Q3 through the capital numbers, as I've indicated before. But all to say that Strong internal capital generation will continue. You know, this, this quarter was 27 basis points. We think it will continue at these levels. Earnings are going to be really strong. And we're very confident about our capital ratio will remain around these levels, which we reported at 12.2, which is, uh, which is a really a good outcome as earnings improve, asset quality remains stable or getting better, and our asset growth is going to come in the future quarters in 2021. That should help us generate better earnings going forward as well. Great. Thank you very much. Okay, operator, can we have the next question, please? The next question is from Lamar Persaud from BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Uh, BMO, uh, no, Cormark <laughs> Securities. But, uh, there, anyway, sorry, sorry. Uh, that's okay. Uh, I just have a quick clarification question for Dan. Dan, I think you mentioned you expect PCLs to decline as we move through 2021. Is that relative to 2020 or relative to Q1 21? Yeah. So, thanks for the question, Lamar. Good to hear from you. Um, let me just say that, you know, as I look at the PCL and the allowances that we have for credit losses right now, we're very happy with where we are. In fact, we're more confident than we have been, more confident than ever, about the adequacy of our reserves and the potential for future allowance releases 
uh, going forward. So to be clear, uh, in line with the outlook provided in Q4 previously, we expect our PCO ratio to be moderately lower in 2021 than in 2019. And that's really down to three things, changes in our footprint, asset quality, and the macroeconomic backdrop. You know, as you recall, we've had changes in our geographic footprint. We've exited some of the lower-rated, higher-credit-risk markets. Um, but against that, we've also had, within our core markets, a shift to higher asset quality, a shift to secure across our footprint, which has uh, driven the allowances to be much more than insufficient. And finally, we've got a strong macroeconomic backdrop, as Nacho indicated, strong outlook for Canada, 5.3% growth, strong outlook for Pacific Alliance, 6% growth. So that all leads to strong tailwinds for us. So we're more than adequately provided. And again, we expect that PCO ratio to be moderately lower in 21 than 19. Great, thank you. Okay, operator, can we have the next question, please? The next question is from Mike Rizvanovic from Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. I wanted to go back to Nacho on the Peru business, and I'm guessing that most of the weakness that we've seen lately has been uh, related to the microfinance business. And so I'm just wondering, is that a business that is part of your recovery story? Is there a lot of torque through an economic recovery, or is that something that maybe gets de-emphasized going forward, just given its volatility? Well, um, I would say first in general that the way I look to Peru is that there is a delay in the recovery compared to the other countries for several reasons, to the other Pacific Alliance countries for several reasons. Uh, I would say first the recession was stronger in Peru. The balance sheet structure in the market is weighted more towards unsecured, and that includes the, the, the business you were referring to. And COVID lockdowns were stricter and longer. And therefore, we have uh, increased our PCL significantly in, in line with the system to build allowances for potential credit losses. But as Daniel just said, we expect PCLs to go down significantly starting in Q2. And in addition, the PTPP of Peru, which has been down 7%, is going to have an important rebound in the second half of the year because GDP growth expectations are 9% for the year. Actually, the central bank has more than 10% forecast for GDP growth in Peru. So in summary, this is a, a, a delay relative to the other countries. And actually, the recovery is well underway from an economic perspective. In December, for example, GDP was already slightly above year over year. And infrastructure, construction projects are driving a 20% increase year over year in cement sales, 80% of the employment has been recovered already, so we expect a, a strong rebound, rebound in the second in the second part of 2021. So, so then, no change in the strategy with respect to the microfinance business in Peru. No, no change in the strategy. This this is a this business is more vulnerable. It had a bigger impact from COVID, but it is a it has been historically a very profitable business, and it will it will take a little bit more time but we'll return to, to strong profitability. Okay, that's very helpful. And then just re one real quick numbers clarification. So your NCI as a percentage of earnings in international, I think it was running at about 10% pre-COVID levels, and uh, it's been about 20% the last two quarters. Is that the new run rate we should use to model international? Approximately 20%, the NCI. Hi, Mike. That's right. 
I think the, the NCI is a, is a difficult one to give you an absolute estimate because it depends on our Chile earnings and Colombia earnings, which are the big contributor to NCI in that business. The way you could think about it is we've done extended disclosures in our geographic highlights table in the MDNA this quarter. You can look at it. You can see that Chile's earnings have recovered. So about, we lose about 22, 23% to NCI, and Colombia is almost 50-50. Colombia had a great quarter, you know, $39 million of earnings, <coughs> which is one of the higher quarters we've had in Colombia. So that drove the increase of the NCI. But that's a number that's hard to predict. It depends on these two countries particularly. But going forward with normal earnings, you could use those percentages. I think it'll be anywhere between 10 and 20% to use your numbers. Okay, that, that's extremely helpful. Thank you. Okay, operator, can we have the next question, please? Thank you. The next question is from Meryl Mandonka from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Good morning. Uh, Danielle, if we could go back to you for a moment. Um, Listening to the guidance you've offered around credit for 2021 and what BMO offered earlier and what some of these U.S. banks have said as well, it, it sounds to me like the government support has essentially socialized all the losses that we would have otherwise expected. Is that your interpretation as well, that the losses have been that we essentially we've, we've bridged uh, commercial and retail borrowers to the vaccine, or is it more your view that the losses will emerge in 2022? Yeah, I think you know, there's a number of effects of play, Mario, but I think the bottom line is that our customer assistance programs did their job. They worked. On the bank side, they're complete. As you said, we bridged our customers' cash flow over the crisis, and we've had in our portfolio a very high return to current status as a result of that. So that's reflecting our strong credit quality. You know, for Canada, we have no accounts in deferral in business banking. 99% of the accounts that were in deferral returned to current. On the retail, 97% returned to current. In international banking, 88% of accounts returned to current. So these programs worked. We're seeing our customers get back on their feet. Customers' balance sheets are stronger than ever. We've seen increases in our deposit balances, reduction in unsecured borrowings. And that's all playing through in our credit metrics. So we're very pleased with how this has played through and gives us reason for that optimistic outlook going forward. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't then point me to higher losses in 2022 as a result? No. Okay, thank you. Operator, can we have the next question, please? The next question is from Gabriel Deshane from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Hey, uh, good morning. Uh, I want to go back to, to Nacho on the international and, you know, that the uh, – you know, walking us to the uh, 500 million uh, uh, earnings number with a few elements behind that is very helpful. I want to know, do you have a number in mind for pre-tax, pre-provision profits, though? Uh, you know, because getting back to 500 million, PCLs being lower is going to help a lot. Uh, if I look at PTPP, you're running at a billion and a half quarter pre-COVID, now closer to one, two. A quarter. I know there's some divestitures, but uh, you know, we're, we're, what what kind of number should I have in mind and, and timing thereof for for that line item? Hey, Gabe, it's right. Let me see if I can help you with that, and then Nacho will obviously compliment if I miss something. I think the way to think about it is sequential again. So you think about Q1. We talked about our commercial growth starting in Q2 and retail following quickly thereafter both of which should add to the revenue line on pre-tax pre-provision. I commented on 
Are NIM going to expand from here, at least remain stable, and then start expanding as retail comes in? So that should improve revenues. We still have between 80 to $100 million of non-interest revenue that's going to come back, primarily from the Caribbean as well as all the retail activity in the Latin American footprint. So that should help you, you know, get to some revenue number and how would you want to sequence it for the remainder of the year. Expenses, like we mentioned, expenses are always going to be a key factor to IB's results. We know how to manage expenses there. It's down 20 million quarter over quarter. It was down quite a bit in Q4 compared to Q3. And you'll see the sequential decline in expenses going forward. So all of which to say that the pre-tax free provision is going to continuously improve when you compare sequentially Q1 to Q2 and Q2 to Q3 and so on. The PCLs will also decline, like Nacho said and Daniel confirmed, from the elevated levels, frankly, it is there even in Q1 compared to our pre-COVID levels. Hopefully that gives you an idea. And three countries are already back to their normal earnings levels, as Nacho indicated in his previous comments. And if Peru follows, that's going to be a huge lift in the quarter that it happens to pre-tax pre-provision earnings. Uh, okay. I, I mean, is Nacho adding it, or I can do a quick follow-up? No, and I think that's a, that's the answer. Maybe the only highlight to, to Rush comments is the Pacific Alliance countries that it's coming faster. And in terms of PTPP, we are already 3% above year over year. So I expect the Pacific Alliance countries to continue delivering strong PTPP performance gradually. Okay, great. And just from a quick margin standpoint in that segment, because commercial is you know losing the way on the loan growth recovery, we shouldn't see too much NIM expansion because those tend to be lower spread in that in that region, right? Yeah, I think, Gabe, if you, if you think about even, sorry, I, I don't know if I cut you off, I'm sorry. Me? Oh, I'm done. No, no, sorry. Um, if, you, if you look at Q1 NIM expansion in IB, lower cost, uh, sorry, higher cost funding we paid down during the quarter, we'll continue to manage our liquidity prudently, not just in IB, but for the rest of the bank, so that should help their margins. Commercial margins should certainly help in maintaining it at the current levels, perhaps expanding depending on how the commercial rates play out in Q2, and certainly when the retail growth comes back, that margin will start expanding pretty quickly. Thanks for all the clarification. You're welcome. Okay, operator, can we have the next question, please? Thank you. The next question is from Sorab Mobahedi from BMO Capital Markets. Hey, thank you. Actually, wanted to maybe ask a question of Jake and uh, and James. Wow. I mean, uh, obviously, very good uh, quarter, Jake and James. Um, the run rate ahead of what would have been implied out of 2020's quarterly results. I know capital markets tend to obviously be volatile, but you know all the work that has been done over the years. Are you at a new run rate that could have a five handle quarterly earnings or? Do you still think it would be in that uh, low to mid 400s? Well, Saurabh, thanks for the question. James and I have been getting dusty over recent quarters waiting for one. Um, so as you noted, we, we have been working hard to reposition the GBM business, and we're coming off a record year in 2020, and Q1 was a very strong start to the year. Um, we're now at a point where we have the second largest wholesale business among Canadian banks when we include in our LATAM business. And it's obviously, as you noted, been an exceptional environment for GBM to capture revenue, and we believe we've captured our fair share. So looking ahead, we do feel the GBM platform is a stronger one. We've made progress towards our natural share in Canada. 
We've elevated our franchise, and we've exhibited the strength of our credit culture, and we continue to strength our balance, uh, strengthen our balance sheet with good deposit growth. So looking out, we've got great M&A pipeline. The asset growth is starting to rebuild. Uh, the growth in our spot loans was better exiting the quarter than, than where the average showed. The ECM business continues to perform strong. And then you add in the international story. LATAM was up 30% quarter over quarter. And our U.S. balance sheet, which is at $150 billion almost, is positioned well to grow uh, with the economic recovery in the U.S. So certainly we think the structural advancements we've made in the business have, impre- have improved the run rate of the business. And what we see this quarter is a reasonable outlook for how we perform, subject to obviously market conditions, as you notice. So we'll look to continue to win for our shareholders, not only on an absolute basis, but also on a relative basis. Okay, that's helpful. And if I can just quickly sneak one in for Brian. Um, I mean, Brian, you talked about uh, obviously the ROE being back at uh, at or slightly above the medium term target, but you're doing that actually. I mean, last time you were at these levels, you had about 100 basis points lower CT1 ratio. So I guess uh, uh, I guess are you are, are we are you going to adjust that maybe medium term <laughs> target higher uh, once uh, there are uh, is there more flexibility around capital deployment, whether it's through share buybacks or uh, or otherwise, or uh, or do you think that still is the right number, even if capital levels drift back to more normal levels? Well, thank you for the question, Saurabh. You've heard me say, and, and a number of our shareholders have, we think we're a 15% plus ROE bank, and we're well on our, our way to be there. And that's a function of all the repositioning we've done Jake just commented about the structural repositioning of our GBM business, which is uh, leads to higher profitability. The, the global wealth management business is performing exceedingly well. Uh, number two in terms of revenue growth, number one in terms of debt income growth, and obviously providing great performance for our clients. So, um, and uh, we think we've got lots of torque in our business. Uh, There's been lots of questions this morning about our international banking business. That's coming back. Loan growth is coming back. I see it in the spot balances. And uh, margins are going to be stable here. Uh, If not improving, PCLs are trending down. You've heard from Daniel. Um, So we like how we're positioned here. And, uh, you know, a 15% uh, uh, quarter, uh, it will be uh, in our eyesight here or in our line of sight here. So we feel very good about our business, both on the revenue side, uh, we manage expenses exceedingly well, and we manage credit exceedingly well. So um, again, we think our numbers have a lot of torque in them, and we're looking forward to the balance of 2021. Okay, operator, can we have the next question, please? The next question is from Lamar Persard from Cormark Securities. Please go ahead. Oh, thanks for taking my question. I'm just going to continue along the lines of Sorop's questioning here. So sticking with Jake and James, it's been a while since we've seen the productivity ratio in GBM dip into the 40% range consistently. And despite the strong revenue growth, I guess expenses are down again year over year again this quarter. Can you talk about some of the reasons for the decline in expenses? And secondly, does the mid-40% productivity ratio feel sustainable if we see some softening in revenue growth? I guess what I'm really trying to get at is understanding the elasticity of expenses if revenues do moderate from here. Thank you. Hey, Lamar, thanks for the question. It's Raj. 
Yeah, it's a really good outcome. Productivity ratio, as you pointed out, is a factor of revenue and expenses, and both have gone the right way for GBM, and we expect it to continue. A 6% decline year-over-year year on expenses is something we're very proud of. We work on it very closely, not just with GBM, but with all our business lines and across the bank. So you're seeing the results of a lot of daily effort, I would add, prioritization, and our philosophy of having expense growth in line and taking its cue from revenue growth. So that's what you're seeing play out. GBM's quarter-over-quarter quarter expenses will be flat or slightly elevated if you look forward because they've got a lot of regulatory spend. IBOR is one project that I would call out. I think it's global. There's a lot of money to be spent over there. But we'll be managing our expenses very prudently. It'll be in line with like performance within the business, and I think you will see that continue as we look forward. You know, I, I hate to give absolute guidance on productivity ratios and so on, but it's nice to be in the 40s. We think we will be no higher than 50 as we look forward in most quarters. Jake, anything to add? Yeah, Lamar, all I'd add in is um, when we look at the business, we do think about absolute expenses, where that growth is. The year-over-year -year number does have a bit of seasonality in it as well. Um, uh, higher expenses in Q1 uh, every year, just around some uh, some performance comps. So we look at that, we look at operating le leverage as well, and as Raj noted, we've got some investment to do. Not only regulatory, we're adding bankers into our international market. There's a chance to feed the revenue pipeline. We're seeing some competitors in markets choose to be less active as they focus on their, their footprints back in Europe and back in Asia. So, so we're adding people in our footprint throughout the Americas that's going to drive better outcomes from, from our Canadian business all the way down to our LATAM business. So again, to Raj's point, it's tough to give you an exact number on productivity. We do focus on that along with operating leverage and absolute expenses. And when we have uh, the revenue uh, environment we have had, we're able to make those investments in the platform. Great, thank you. Operator, can we have the next question, please? The next question is from Paul Holden from CIBC. Please go ahead. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Just want to continue with that same uh, topic, the productivity ratio. We've you've talked about it for a number of the business segments, but maybe you can put it all together for us at the all bank level, and particularly in the context of the digital uptake trends you've shown in your uh, in your slide deck. And I guess the bigger picture question is with the digital uptake and the pull forward of that through COVID is a lower bound on where you can take the productivity ratio significantly lower than you would have imagined pre-COVID and maybe you can give us some sense on how much further you could go there again on the uh, on the all bank level. Sure Paul, thank you and it's Raj. Um, expense management we think is a cornerstone of our operations. We have done it time and time again. We have done it quarter after quarter and we're doing it year after year. I indicated in prior calls, we'll always manage expense growth prudently and we'll prioritize our spend across the bank and it'll take a skew from revenue growth. So that's the principle and we'll continue to follow that. So the 51.8% this quarter is, is kind of an expected result from our perspective. And a few years back, we had given guidance saying we'd ideally like to be around the 50% productivity ratio level across the bank. And we continue to have that as a target and we'll keep working towards that. The outlook for 2021 expenses, when I spoke in November, it's pretty clear that the expense is going to be flat compared to 2020 in 2021. And that's going to you know, require a lot of work and effort across our teams because we want to continue to invest in supporting business growth. Technology, of course, is a big component of the spend we've had in the last few years, and we'll continue to do that. And of course, regulatory initiatives. But the savings will come from efficiencies. 
not just talk before about the digital investments we have made, the level of efficiency we are able to pick up both in Canadian banking as well as in the, in the IDPNC. That will continue. When revenue is good like we have in wealth management as well as in, uh, in GBM, it certainly feeds the productivity ratio quite nicely. I should point out here wealth management's productivity ratio is industry leading has been for a very long time and it's now below 60%. So we're very proud of the efforts we make in managing our costs prudently. And of course, the revenue lift certainly helps in keeping the productivity ratio up. So that you should see it continue, Paul. It's difficult to give a path to 50%, but it's certainly a target to get to 50% and we'll continue working towards that. Okay, very clear on that. Thank you. Thanks. Operator, can we have the next question, please? The next question is from Gabriel Deshane from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Hi there. Just a follow-up on the uh, well, no, credit question, I guess. Um, and the PCL guidance is pretty clear at this point, or indication. Uh, I just want to know if you have a, a, a sense, Daniel, of, of where the impaired loan ratio uh, could trend. Uh, could this thing pop uh, over, uh, you know, 100 basis points, or, or, or stay below that? You, you're, you're talking about Q2, Q3. Sounds like those will be the peak uh, formation quarters. Yeah, I think, I think the important thing that we're focused on here, Gabriel, is um, that we've built more than sufficient allowances for the anticipated increase in net write-offs. So it's going to happen, as you said, through Q2 and likely peaking in Q3. Uh, and that's why we're taking this thoughtful, deliberate, and data-driven approach to any releases that we might have this quarter. But here's what I can say. Against that backdrop of being confident that we're well-provisioned for those write-offs, we are seeing the portfolio, as I said, perform very well, and in fact, inside of our expectations. And so all of that leads us to believe that we're likely going to start seeing releases from our performing allowances in Q2 to offset any increase that might happen in the, uh, or likely will happen in the non-performing allowances in the same quarters, and you'll see that continued going forward. So the way we think about this overall is that these allowances are on the balance sheet, they're there for a reason. We viewed Q1 as not being the time to take the boards off the windows, but this is a balance sheet item, and where we're focused on from here is on top-line revenue growth. Okay, I, I, I'm not trying to belabor the point here, and, and, and you know, your impaired loans, I think you were the only bank with them declining last year. I'm not gonna sweat a little bit of an uptick this quarter, I'm just wondering if you know, with Q2, Q3, are these peak uh, write-off and impairment quarters? How, you know, what does what does peak look like? Yeah. So Q2, our, our, our definitions of peak have been wrong uh, to date. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think the, the, the important thing here is that the Q2, Q3 will be up. They will. The, the total increase will be fairly less than less than 100, let's say. But the important thing here is that because of the sufficiency of allowances the total PCL will be less than our 2019 numbers. Yep. All right, well, thanks, Daniel. And everybody else? Thanks. Okay, operator, can we have uh, the next question, please? The next question is from Sorar Movahedi from BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. I thought I'd get one more in on, uh, on another fellow we don't usually hear much from, Glenn. The, uh, the wealth business obviously has a bit of a... And I think a one-time benefit in there, but you know, it, we we now have a couple of years worth of uh, track record since the acquisitions under our belt. Can you 
just paint a picture of how the acquisitions have done relative to expectations. And uh, secondarily, have, give us a sense of what we should be expecting as far as capital accretion out of your business in the next, call it four to eight quarters. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Arvind Glenn. Um, so on the uh, on the acquisition piece, I think first and foremost, as you mentioned, we're you know we're coming into three years on those. Uh, they're very very well integrated, and that's gone exceedingly well, frankly. Um, whether you look at it from a a revenue standpoint, clients retention standpoint, staff retention standpoint, all uh, all equal or better than what we expected, and. Those businesses are really fully integrated into our wealth management franchise now, and so you you know you can see the growth in those coming in the uh, in the overall numbers. I think you know specifically if I if I look at you know Jaroslawski Fraser uh, continuing to win institutional mandates in, a, in frankly a tough institutional market in Canada, but continuing to grow um, both on the institutional side as well as in the private uh, the private wealth side, which is great, and their assets are at a record level. Uh, I look at you know MD. Again, we're seeing client retention better than before we acquired them. We're seeing staff retention better than before we were, before they were acquired. Uh, strong net sales and record asset levels. So that's you know from from any standpoint that's uh, um, that's nothing short of a home run. So, but I think more importantly is the the breadth to your point of success across the businesses. Whereas whether it's the investment results, uh, strong net flows within the mutual fund franchise. Uh, frankly, net positive across uh, the businesses and strong revenue growth. So uh, we believe we're very, very well positioned for uh, for future. Um, you know, because even outside of performance fees or or some of the lumpiness, uh, the underlying results are really, really strong. So I would say you know momentum for us is uh, is going to be good going forward. Thank you. Thank you. This will conclude the question and answer session. Back to your hosts. Thank you, everyone, for participating in our call today. On behalf of the entire management team, I want to thank everyone for participating in our call. We look forward to speaking with you again at our Q2 2021 call in June. This concludes our first quarter results call. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.